This is The Storied Outdoors, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us. This essay is entitled Shared Experiences, written by Dr. Brian Gill and read for you by Brad Hill. Life is not a problem to be solved, but an adventure to be lived. John Eldridge. The sun was setting over the marshlands of southern Louisiana as we made our way up the Mississippi after an eventful day of inshore fishing. Our center console vessel roared past great blue herons stalking their prey in the reeds and shrimp boats drawing their nets from the channel. Ospreys returned to their cypress homes and chirped victoriously with their taloned catch. Water glistened in the rooster tail of our boat hugging the bend as warm air and brackish spray soothed our sunburned grins. The harbor came into sight. The end of the world. Venice, Louisiana. Our satisfaction in the trip was evident, even if this particular excursion was not free of hardships. But that's how it is with all great stories. Obstacles must be overcome, and in the end, the protagonist emerges victorious. Venice, located in the mouth of the mighty Mississippi River at the southernmost point of Louisiana, is a unique fishing village with a population of about 200. The community may be small, but it is resilient and tough and thrives even though it's been devastated by numerous hurricanes. Camille and Katrina, to name a couple. Fishermen worldwide flock to this tiny map dot because of its proximity to deep holes in the Gulf of Mexico, primed for catching schooling tuna. This quaint community is what fishing dreams are made of. Grizzled fishermen gather in one of only a few watering holes in the harbor and tell tales of the good old days to the young dock boys who think they are living their own. Equipped with its fair share of colorful characters, Venice is a, a place where someone could come for the fishing but leave with a story. It was May 2012, and my buddy Matt had invited me to spend the weekend in Venice to partake in the diverse ecosystem where the fertile river meets the vast ocean for a few days of inshore fishing. I gladly obliged. Matt, a former college baseball player turned dentist and I met in Memphis, Tennessee when he was finishing up dental school. He was the president of the Baptist Collegiate Ministries, a student group and nonprofit organization of which I had just become the executive director. He lived in the apartment below my wife and me on a glorified sandbar along the Mississippi River called Mud Island. Soon we began swapping hunting and fishing stories, and I quickly learned that behind his humble demeanor, he was an avid outdoorsman, whose trophies and stories compared to mine made me feel as though I had never stepped foot in the woods. But life, and especially friendship, is not about comparison. As Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. And there was no room for that in my friendship with Matt. Several years after our initial meeting, when Matt had begun a, a dental practice of his own, he procured a guided fishing trip for two from an inshore fishing guide in Venice. 
This trip was donated as a, uh, a silent auction item for our nonprofit's annual Beast Feast fundraiser, a wild game dinner that raised money for missions. Being the highest bidder, Matt won the trip and invited me to come along. After the seven-hour drive south from Memphis, I soon realized why this tiny fishing community was called the end of the world. Upon reaching the southernmost tip of Louisiana, we quite literally ran out of road and gazed upon the Gulf of Mexico glistening in the moonlight, like two explorers reaching the ocean for the first time. We'd made it and couldn't wait to see what adventures awaited us. Our lodging, nestled in the harbor, was a floating cabin that slept about six, a, a cozy home for the weekend that I hoped we wouldn't spend much time in. We rose early the next morning and loaded the boat before daylight. Rods, reels, coolers, and snacks, which previously covered the dock, were all loaded, and soon we were idling blindly out of the dark harbor into the fringe of dawn. Matt, his dad, and I were embarking on our own this first day to try our hand without a guide before our charity trip the following day. The weather was pleasant, but the water was angry at the mouth of the river, and there were times when I felt that our center console would be overtaken by her rage. But soon, once we reached the calmer water of the Gulf Flats, the sun began to rise, and the island where we were slated to fish came into view. We were fishing for speckled trout, an aggressive ocean trout that feeds in the shallows where shrimp are plentiful, and that's just what we were using for bait. A popper cork with a medium-sized live shrimp attached to the end of a three-foot leader. Now, having very little inshore fishing experience, I didn't know what to expect, but I soon caught on. The limit was 25 trout per person per day and we each caught our limit by 9 a.m. that morning. The other three boats in our flotilla fared the same. Now, after eating a quick snack of salami and cheese, we left the small island, returned to the harbor, and began cleaning fish. Not a bad morning on the water at all. One of my fondest memories of that day was when a dock boy motored up in his dinghy and offered to trade us a slab of fresh tuna for a couple of pounds of speckled trout. We, we agreed to the terms without hesitation and ate well that afternoon on seared tuna. I spent the remainder of the day listening to fishing tales from the older men in the group and then later went exploring the marshlands with my camera. The next day was more of the same, a successful trip in the morning, cleaning fish on the dock until around noon, but instead of killing the afternoon through the lens of my camera, Matt and I cashed in our guided fishing trip one that would forever live in infamy in our minds. The day started off with great promise, as we met the captain at one of the prime slips in the harbor. His boat was brand new, and this was her maiden voyage, so new that she was stark white and had not yet received her branding wrap on the side. She was a beauty, a 26-foot center console with a Yamaha 300 in the rear. We were excited to be the first clients. <laughs> but being the first doesn't always mean smooth sailing. And what we were about to experience was anything but smooth. We started the afternoon fishing the jetties for redfish, something I'd always longed to do. We reached our spot, and the captain threw out the brand new anchor 
to keep us steady. Swiftly, after the splash of the anchor, went the splash of the anchor rope that was so new it hadn't yet been attached to the boat. We stared in disbelief at the end of the rope as it snaked over the edge straight to the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) We lunged unsuccessfully after the rope, but it was out of sight in a flash. The water was relatively shallow, so we attempted to fish for the anchor rope with our weighted jigs. Now, with my uh, aggressive retrieval tactics trying to hook the anchor rope, I managed to hook a 35-pound Jack Creval by the tail, a powerful fish that refused to surrender. I fought this accidental fish for 30 minutes until the baitcast reel quite literally exploded in my hands. I managed to catch a glimpse of the tail that spanned some 12 inches wide, But with the guts and gears and a mushroomed line of a busted reel draped over my hands, any chance of retrieval was lost, and I was left with no choice but to cut the line and let it go free. With tails tucked and tongues wagging from the loss of a great fish, a lost anchor, and a busted reel, we needed a change of scenery. We navigated to some nearby flats that were known to hold good fish. In the distance, we caught a shimmering glimpse of a tarpon running in the shallows. The captain decided to let us try our hand at these silver beauties. But her luck wasn't changed. We fished the shallows where the tarpon were feeding, and before long, match reel zinged, and we awaited the unmistakable leap of a hooked tarpon. But it never came. Instead, it dove deep and hard and circled the boat. It wasn't a tarpon. It was a young black tip shark. Matt fought it like a champ and eventually landed the three foot missile. As he was releasing his catch, my rod tip jerked and a fish was on. Another shark, a bigger shark, a five foot long adult black tip shark. He took me for a ride and refused to be landed. However, once I muscled him to the boat, we mistakenly tried to net him to get a better grip on his tail. The captain dipped the pristine net in the water and with one chomp of the shark's razor teeth, he was out of the other side of the net with ease. There we stood with an angry shark on the end of my line and a useless net encircled around my rod. We weaved the rod and reel through the net and then the shark dove under the boat. I stood taut with both hands on the rod grips and it proved to be too much for the graphite shaft. The rod splintered into three pieces, and once again, we were forced to cut the line with nothing to show for the fight. I apologized profusely to the captain, but he ensured me that that was precisely why he bought equipment with lifetime warranties. With the cost of equipment piling up for the captain and little to show for it, he decided to take us to a more profitable location near an oil rig. This spot was exactly what we needed to redeem the trip. It was an old abandoned rig in about 20 feet of water where the fresh water of the river met the salt water of the ocean. A distinct line could be seen where the murky brown water contrasted against the deep blue water as the tide rolled in. This was undoubtedly a good thing as the fishing turned to catching. Cast after cast, we pulled in a variety of species including red snapper, speckled trout, Jack Creval, Sheep's Head, Flounder, Redfish, and a lone catfish that we don't speak of. 
Once the sun began to set, the captain called for one last cast. We reeled in our lines and made our way back to the harbor, with a little less gear, but a few more stories. When reflecting on that fishing trip, I have, uh, I have to laugh. I have to laugh at the irony of how much that charity trip must have cost that guide. I'm reminded of the old adage, no good deed goes unpunished. Granted, the gear was quickly replaced by the guide's sponsors, but as the adversity unfolded in real time, it seemed like a cursed trip that relentlessly threw obstacle after obstacle at us anglers. In some way, overcoming those obstacles with a friend like Matt was what sweetened the adventure far beyond what having a flawless experience by myself could have offered. In 2014, Psychological Science released a fascinating study about the power of shared experiences. They concluded that regardless of whether the experience was good or bad, it was enhanced by sharing it with someone else. They discovered that the level of perceived enjoyment was higher when a bad event was shared with others than when a good event was experienced alone. The writer of Ecclesiastes addresses the value of companionship amidst hardships. In chapter 4, he writes, Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can someone keep warm alone? And though one may be overpowered, two can resist. But a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Personally, this has proven to be true in my life. I've come to embrace obstacles and relish a good challenge, as long as I can attack them both with a companion, whether it be my wife or a dear friend. I would shudder at the thought of fighting battles alone, but as Tolkien would say, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. Men and women alike need adventures where they overcome obstacles and fear, not safe and uneventful encounters that they traverse alone. This is why all the great writers drag their protagonists through escalating levels of conflict, and more times than not, there is a companion that helps them along the way. It is why Marines form a bond stronger than a brotherhood during Hell Week. It's why adventurous teams sign up for grueling races like Eco Challenge. And finally, it's why we need both Frodo and Sam. Lucy and Edmund, Anne and Diana, Harry and Ron, and Holmes and Watson. Separate, these duos are incomplete, but together they are heroic and can overcome insurmountable odds. John Eldridge once wrote, Deep in his heart every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live and a beauty to rescue. I have often wondered why this is. Why do men long for adventure? Why do men yearn for epic stories to tell? Is it to build ourselves up and become the hyper-masculine, grunting, scratching, egocentric version of a man displayed in action films? (laughs) Gracious, I hope that's not the case. But I fear that it is true more times than not. For me... Seeking adventure helps me to experience God in new ways. I feel a deeper connection to God when I'm in His creation. 
Attempting the impossible moves me beyond my fears and doubts and towards a more prayerful reliance on God for strength and courage. While I do not seek difficulties and hardships and would advise against such foolishness, they are but a byproduct of adventure, and overcoming them builds faith and provides assurance that when future obstacles arise, those that happen naturally in life, God can see me through those as well. When we overcome obstacles or successfully navigate a quest, we are in some small way participating in God's ultimate story of good, overcoming evil. These are the stories worth telling, but they're not always the safe ones. I often think about that trip in Venice and sitting around swapping stories with the other men on that trip. Rarely did we talk about the perfect fishing trip or hunting trip. Instead, we talked about the times when we survived an epic failure or snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. These were the stories that we told. When men begin swapping stories, if you listen closely, you'll notice that nobody tells stories of the safe times. Not once will you hear someone telling a story of safely navigating a river without any trouble. In an Art of Manliness article in 2008, Chris Hutchinson wrote, To have grand adventures and be able to tell tales of them is central to manliness. Men tell stories of adventures, and rarely are these experiences recounts of flawless happenings. In fact, I'd venture to say that flawless encounters are quite boring and don't make very good stories. If you've ever been snow skiing, some of the best times are sitting around the hearth with a fire blaze talking about the runs you attempted that day. You talk about the risk you took and the times you succeeded as well as the times you failed. For me, I usually recall the time in Big Sky, Montana, where I wiped out on a black diamond by the Liberty Bowl and slid upside down and backwards without my skis, poles, boots, and boot liners. That's right, folks, the boot liner. There I was, standing sock-footed on the side of the mountain when what could have been a 12-year-old skied past me and said, Whoa, dude, I've never seen that before. And then he skied off with ease. Thanks, kid. Thanks a lot. The same goes for whitewater rafting trips. You don't share about the rapids you safely made it through. You talk about the class fours you trudged through while maneuvering a 360-degree spin and how you nearly lost half your crew and gear, but the only reason you survived is because you formed a human chain to hold on to the one friend who fell halfway out just before slamming into a boulder. Sadly, working in an office or a cubicle every day, we have become caged and domesticated and fearful of a life lived outside the safety of our four walls. The most adventurous part of our day is trying to outrun a red light or jiggle the vending machine to get two packs of crackers instead of one. Adventure doesn't come naturally in our everyday lives anymore. We have to be intentional about seeking it. Not for the sheer thrill of it all, but to heed the longing to experience our Creator in His creation. Few exciting tales ever happen to someone sitting at an office desk or in a recliner watching the television. But, as Baden-Powell once said, where is there a boy to whom the call of the wild and the open road does not appeal? 
There is a call from the deep within each of us, a call that longs for adventure, but it doesn't come naturally. It must be pursued. This calling, I believe, is part of our eternal DNA. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Susan asked if Aslan, the great lion, the character who represents Jesus in this story, is quite safe. An astonished Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So many times we try to domesticate this untamable lion, God, who has imprinted his very image deep within our soul. But he is wild. And whether we like to admit it, we feel this wildness deep in our gut as well. Because of this, it's only natural to pursue the paradox of both the unsafe and the good, adventure and stability, a desire to find beauty in ashes, a diamond in a dark mine. Life is not about creating perfect occurrences that avoid hardships. Life is about living and getting out there wherever there might be for you, experiencing God, overcoming hardships, and creating memories that are worth telling. Who cares if you fail? Failure is what sweetens the victory. Failure is where you find strength in God. The Apostle Paul says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Find a companion or a friend and discover where the rivers flow. Chase the waterfalls until you reach their source. Follow a hobbit trail into the dark wood. Step out of the wardrobe and into a pine thicket. Explore the wild lands and attempt the impossible. Release your inner lion and go find your adventure in the storied outdoors. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take some time to leave us a review. Or better yet, share it with a friend. We hope these stories encourage you, encourage you to write your own stories and share your own adventures in the storied outdoors.